First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in the industry. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. In uh, five, four, three, two. We good? Yeah. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined by my friends. Steve Jeffries. Yogi Powell. Uh, we did want to clarify, some people actually believed it when we said that Andy Palmer was fired. That's right. Uh, he was laid off. <laughs> As part of restructuring, he was laid off. Not fired. Um, yes. Uh, but uh, we, we do, would want to make it very clear that we will be donating Andy's share of the Patreon money to Jeffrey Epstein's Legal <laughs> Defense Fund. Listen, we need billionaire dirt. We have to keep the people out and about to get more dirt on them. We're recording this Sunday, July 7, and then just yesterday we got the news that Jeffrey Epstein's been arrested in uh, Manhattan. We don't know all the exact charges yet, but this is the first of the billionaires we have done episodes on to be arrested. That's right. I think it was one count of... Trafficking a minor, or in another count of trying to traffic a minor. <laughs> so, one count of jealousy for his entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> I heard it was because yeah. he was downloading music from Napster still. I'm pretty sure this is a downloading music issue, guys. He's failing to innovate, <laughs> uh, not, cr- not creating enough jobs, I that's, guess. That's what they got Capone on. That's right, yeah. Illegal downloads. Napster. <laughs> <laughs> I was but, a Kazaa kid back in the day. Yeah. But, you know, uh, so one billionaire arrested 2000 ago. But it is interesting where it's like, you know, hey, we'll see. Uh, by the time this comes out, uh, he's supposed to appear in uh, Jeffrey Epstein's supposed to appear in court in Manhattan on, on Monday. So you'll probably have more details about uh, what the exact charges are, uh, assuming he is not assassinated on the way to the courtroom <laughs> by some sort of bald man with a barcode tattoo on the back of his neck. Steven, you're shaving your head tonight, right? What? I'm insinuating that you're going to be our um, assassin for this crime. <laughs> I was thinking, like, he's being held in Manhattan, so we could get, like, a fucking lynch mob of coked-up Cumbtown fans <laughs> storm the jail cell. I think we should show up and show our support. It's, it's our most listened to episode. We gotta, Look, we gotta show up. As prison abolitionists, we have a duty <laughs> to make sure that they free Jeffrey Epstein. It's... It's you, you don't really believe in it unless you believe in it when it's an unpopular position. No one should live mm-hmm. in a cage. <laughs> They're caging people. Um, but I guess we'll we'll keep an eye on uh, the Epstein developments and we'll probably uh, do some updates. But it, it should just be noted, we just did the episode on Leon Black, who has some kind of tenuous links to Jeffrey Epstein. Leslie Wexner is the Victoria's Secret billionaire who um, was kind of Jeffrey Epstein's sponsor. I read in that Daily Beast article, like, uh, a woman alleges that Epstein molested her at Leslie Wexner, the billionaire's house, mm-hmm. and his Leslie Wexner's security prevented her from leaving. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. So it's like you know, there's there's a lot of uh, I think David Koch was in Epstein's like Rolodex of contacts. There's a lot of different billionaires that are connected to this uh, <laughs> pedophile uh, guy. I just really hope they get Dershowitz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goddamn. Um, but yeah, what a piece of shit. 
But I guess we'll we'll follow up on that uh, in the in the near future. But uh, this week we're talking about Steven Feinberg, is the founder of Cerberus Capital, and there's also more stories related to uh, that that just broke today, which we'll get to in just one second. But um, basically, this is another private equity guy, and I think um, Steven Feinberg founded uh, Cerberus Capital Management in 1992, mm-hmm. which is a private equity firm uh, named after the three-headed dog that guards hell <laughs> in Greek mythology. You know, which I'll give credit for at least being like an appropriate name yeah, yeah. for like an asset stripping and flipping and community destroying yeah, financial this, this entity. This is like almost as good as Blackwater <laughs> as far as representing what it does. Well, uh, if you do, if you two don't know, I, the, uh, from the river sticks, the the bodies of our of our souls go to the gates of Hades, and we're met with Kerberos, the three headed dog. That Kerber, go- sorry, it's the Greek pronunciation. Sean, I went to private school. <laughs> 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 this is the shit you learn when they know that your parents have money, ladies and gentlemen. Bullshit, you don't need to know. He's wearing a, a monocle right now. <laughs> Epstein just got the shit kicked out of him for saying that. <laughs> I went to yeah, private I saw school. The, I saw I saw Hercules. Yeah. Well, there you go. But yes, a private equity firm called Cur- I can't even say it anymore. Cerberus. Cerberus. Uh that's that's a uh, pretty telling. Yes. You know, I mean like at least they're doing that instead of calling it like Ally Financial or some <laughs> anodyne bullshit. Right, right. <laughs> they're getting right to the message. Though apparently he regrets the name, but they it stuck now. So whatever. Why uh, would you regret that name? I don't know because people because they keep writing articles about how he's responsible for the Sandy Hook massacre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wanted to call it Three Headed Bitches, but we went with Cerberus instead. Yeah, uh, but so Cerberus has been involved in uh, Remington. They owned Remington for a while. Or just quoting from Forbes, the firm attracted negative attention in 2013 for its stake in Freedom Group, which manufactured the rifle used in the Sandy Hook massacre. Oh. And, uh, you know, they, they rolled a bunch of different gun companies up into one mega conglomerate and called it Freedom Group. Jesus Christ. Which, you know, is one definition of freedom. Man, I love this Freedom Group. Got the best bullets in the game. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, but so they they've been involved in a uh, uh, freedom group, uh, the gun business. They've been in, they own Dynecor is like private military contractors. We'll talk more about in a minute. And uh, they were involved in the uh, auto bailout to a big degree. They, oh really? They bought into Chrysler. They bought into uh, GM's financial unit. Uh, so they've just been kind of all over the map uh, with um uh very shady dealings that often have to be bailed out or funded by the government. Um, but I guess just with regards to Stephen Feinberg, he was uh, he started out at both Dre- he started out at Drexel Burnham Lampert, mm-hmm. which again we just did this Leon Black episode. Just uh, we talked about Michael Milken a lot. Uh, that was of course Michael Milken's firm where he ran his Ponzi scheme inside a trading ring, and it's right. like I'm I'm starting to become convinced that Drexel is like the fucking original cartel that, you know, the government breaks it up and then they splinter into all of these different, smaller, more violent, warring cartel factions. You know, it's like the original fucking wasp's nest. Yes. Once you break them apart, they're sharpened by their pain and they want to inflict as much as they can to society. They uh, coordinate false flag attacks on elementary schools. (laughs) (laughs) Um... 
to drive up their sales. So wait, so you, the thought is is that they they committed the conspiracy of the shooting so that it would drive up gun sales? Is that the thought? It's like, you know, I, I will say it's one of the most depressing things you'll read about in capitalism is how the gun market functions in response to a mass shooting. Because like, so like all private equity, they have like heavy investment from teachers' mm-hmm. pensions, right. you know? So these teachers' pensions were like, uh, yeah, could you stop investing in uh, the tools being used to murder <laughs> us? And they're like, yeah, totally. But then they have a massive sales spike after Sandy Hook. So it was a Mm -hmm. huge financial boon for them that some guy walked in and started killing 20 children and a few teachers. So, you know, he wasn't an employee. That's what you're saying. (laughs) He was a private contractor. (laughs) They had him on. They had Adam Lanza on a temp worker contract to keep him from unionizing. (laughs) I remember there's so many conspiracies when that happened. I think I was like. I think I was in uh, Oregon doing shows, and so I just had time on my hand. And I remember, like, when the news reports first came out, it was like there was a guy in camouflage running through the woods, and then there was three other shooters. And there's just so many, like, and I'm not talking about like like deep internet conspiracy. I mean, like, literally CNN is saying like we're we've got reports of these eight different individuals that have taken out, and then it you know whittles down to what it what it actually was. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the thought that those other shooters could be connected to this. That would be nuts. Yeah. Well, fortunately, Mossad tied up those loose ends. <laughs> Burn the bodies, baby. Well, what would you guys do? Well, we took care of it. <laughs> but there's like this narrative of um, like all of the gun manufacturers uh, collectively shit a brick when Trump won. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, basically. Though, I mean, like Cerberus will kind of get into or Steven Feinberg specifically donated like I think one point five million to Trump's super PAC. And in 2018, he's been named uh, the chairman of Trump's uh, intelligence advisory board. Oh. And uh, that's just kind of weird because he didn't have to divest. So we mentioned he owns DynCorp as a major private military contractor. Oh, right. So, of course, he's like advising the president and getting access to all these intelligence reports on like what he should do with his spy agencies while, of course, owning a business that can profit from that information. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, like it wasn't great for his gun business, but the fact that he has like all these ends with the White House has been good for some other stuff. Mm-hmm. So what's Feinberg's net worth? What's his total? Uh, so Forbes says as of July 2019, he's worth about $1.6 billion. Hmm. And um, uh, it is just like one more thing is so DynCor, uh has been implicated multiple times in like actual <laughs> human trafficking. <laughs> wow. Uh, overbilling the government, uh, murder in Iraq in particular. Paying um, way too much for this trafficking. <laughs> we got to cut down on costs and trafficking. Oh, yeah. What class they're fr- flying? But if you dig into like the QAnon conspiracies, uh, there was like a strain of that where they would talk about like DynCor was like hired by the UN to work in Haiti. So they were saying DynCor was doing like organ trafficking for Hillary Clinton and shit. Oh, really? And then, you know, it was just kind of interesting where you have to see the QAnon world reckon with Trump naming this guy the head of his intelligence advisory <laughs> board. <laughs> and everybody always says, keep your friends close keep your enemies close <laughs> right right <laughs> that's how you explain away any inconsistency in the story the dinecore thing has like this sort of like deeper event like both both capitalized mm-hmm. sort of thing like uh with the conspiracies because like they were the gun manufacturers were definitely all in for hillary oh really <laughs> yeah yeah they was... wanted to have eight eight years of 80, like or, of paranoia about right, people right. taking the guns there's there's like a common quote that so I'll, like like uh, I think DynCorp and other like Remington and all them do happen to come up in these like right wing conspiracies, it's just because they did have a vested interest in right, like, right. Uh, Democratic 
uh, party winning. Yeah, there's like a common quote, like <laughs> Obama was the greatest gun salesman of all time, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Um, but it is just interesting with regards to Steven Feinberg. He's born 1960. We mentioned 1.6 billion net worth, but it's like he is incredibly secretive. Uh, like uh, apparently the year he starts Cerberus Capital Management in 1992, 2007 is the first time he granted an interview or agreed to be photographed for a publication. Oh wow, so this is a real they, low key billion. Right, right. Um, and that was for Upstart Business Magazine. This is because he was buying Chrysler at the time. So, you know, it's a yeah. kind of a heavy publicity thing. Right. Um, and just from the New York Times, Feinberg is reported to have joked to a private meeting of his investors in 2007 that, quote, if anyone at Cerberus has his picture in the paper and a picture of his apartment, we will do more than fire that person. We will kill him. The jail sentence will be worth it, unquote. And uh, that is exactly how you dispel rumors that you are involved in organ trafficking. (laughs) Wait, he just straight up said, we'll kill you? Yeah, I mean, there was like nervous laughter in the room. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder why I was nervous. (laughs) But yes, like... His face is completely serious. Yeah, right. We were just nervously. Hey, by the way, if anyone fucks me over, I will kill you and or jail time. The jail time would be worth it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anyone not laughing is just immediately seen after the fucking thing. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like something where it's like private equity has such a bad reputation. Go back to the '80s, and they do many shady things that we've we've kind of gone over a lot. So it's like it makes sense. Keep your fucking face out of the paper. Don't let people see that you live in a fucking mansion because it <laughs> it makes the peasants resentful. You yeah. know. Uh, that you're destroying their livelihoods and you get to live like a king. And you're selling the tools that they could use to murder you. Yes. Like, that's, you know, that's like selling... I don't have a good analogy for it. You guys got some... It is interesting just how many layoffs they did at, like, Remington and Bushmasters. <laughs> right, right. Like, all of these people who literally know how to make guns. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, we're uh, cutting your severance. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, you, you don't get to keep those vacation days. <laughs> What are you going to do about it, bitch? I like how it seems like... We're guarded by a dog that sits outside of hell. <laughs> you can't touch us. It's right there in the name. Good luck with that. Every crew they hire just murders the previous crew. Their layoffs aren't ever just people leaving the company. It's just people being murdered. The Pol Pot model of private equity. <laughs> Um, but it is it's something that I've I've realized as the longer I've done this podcast, you know, besides all Pizzagate is real. But uh, <laughs> another thing that I've realized is like private equity, a lot of what they do functions is functionally equivalent to a mafia bust out. Like they did an episode of The Sopranos about this. But basically, like if you owe money to the mob and you can't pay them, and you have a business, they're going to come in and they're going to run up all your business credit, all your credit cards, just buying shit on credit. Hmm. Then you declare bankruptcy and they keep all the shit, you know. Uh, So it's like private equity legally does a lot of things that are very similar to that. We've, We've mentioned like dividend recapitalization. Private equity will buy a company, then have it put the debt used to buy it on its own books, then have it take on more debt, which they'll use to pay itself a profit, so their profit's locked in. Or another thing they'll do is if they buy a company, say retail, that has a lot of real estate assets, if it owns those real estate assets, it'll have the company sell the real estate assets to them and then rent it back to the company. Oh, wow. And it's like, just this kind of shit is just sucking money out of a business. It's functionally equivalent to a mafia bust out, but this is like a respectable uh, businessman way to fuck 
fucking make your make your bones on Wall Street. Right. And, and most people have no idea that this shit goes on. Well, at least they're not strippers. You know, I mean, yeah. at least they're doing something that uh, hurts society, but they're not, you know, sharing their 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 godly body to strangers that want to come. I just think it's bullshit how we look at strippers that they're shitty, but it's people like this that exist that are literally making the world terrible, and we're like, no, that's an upstanding human. Yeah, or just like, you know, what, controversial podcasters or whoever you want to be (laughs) mad at. (laughs) Just like podcasters who use ancient racial slurs and do podcasts about billionaires. What? (laughs) (laughs) Don't get mad at us. Wait, so what, I mean, like, all right, so Sean just uh, brilliantly broke down why private equity fucks shit over again, but why do people think it's good? Like, what what is the, you know, so the businesses that are now being rented their own retail space, Mm -hmm. are they... Do they think they'll make more money by by getting private equity, or are they usually broke and private equity is buying them out? A lot of times it's a hostile takeover, mm. or like another thing they'll do is they'll get management in on the deal. Mm. So it's like if they can offer equity stakes to management, management can make like millions of dollars right. if they agree to be taken over. Of, and they don't give a fuck about the workers. Yeah, right, of course. You know? So there's, there's lots of different cases. So wait, greed is not good? <laughs> I don't know. You'll you'll have to ask uh, the children at Sandy Hook <laughs> Elementary School. Well, I can't anymore, Sean. That's the problem. No, really. They're actually hiding out in hate. <laughs> 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 nobody died. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most, crisis, hu- crisis the most humane false flag in history. You know, as much as I like that Alex Jones got <laughs> taken down, I don't like that this was the reason. I wish it was something even stupider. <laughs> I wish the Sandy Hook him saying was fake wasn't the reason why he got taken down. I wish it was something even dumb like, oh, the products you sell have poison in them, Alex Jones. Yeah, poison to make you stronger. (laughs) Uh, But I I guess I wanted to move into the biography, though. Just note two other quick things here. Uh, One is like just the straight up blatant corruption with Cerberus Capital. Uh, In 1999, they hired former Vice President Dan Quayle as Mm. a chairman. You know, his, his job is to spell potato. <laughs> he has to keep trying on the whiteboard till he gets it right. Um, you know, and so essentially it's like, okay, you hire a major Republican player. You use that to lobby the government. Um, in 2006, though, and this is the really blatant one, they hired the outgoing U.S. Secretary of the Treasury under George Bush, John Snow. Mm-hmm. They hired him as another chairman. And then this becomes relevant because in late 2008, they get the Bush administration to give them a massive bailout. Mm for their stake in GM Financial, Chrysler, and stuff. Um, and uh, we mentioned, yes, he donated a one point, Stephen Feinberg donated $1.5 million to pro-Trump uh, super PACs uh, shortly before the 2016 elections. Hmm. Uh, so he's a, a big kind of re- player in Republican politics. And then, uh, unsurprisingly, DynCorp gets like more than $3 billion in revenue from contracts with the federal government just wow. for doing... Uh, not only security, but also other work in Afghanistan and Iraq and such. Is it safe to say every billionaire we've covered has ties in the government to procure the amount of money they make? I would say so. Like, I think in particular financial billionaires, like, are incapable of operating without massive assistance from the U.S. federal government. Right, right. Like, I, there's literally not one that, that isn't in there. Hmm. Um, but I guess we'll kind of get back to Dinecorn in a, in a minute here. We can start with the general biography of Steven Feinberg and, uh, you know, what we do know about him, which is basically just from this one interview he gave to Upstart Business Mag 
magazine in mm-hmm. 2007. This is like the only actual biographical information that exists on the guy. Uh, so basically, from what we know, he was born in the Bronx in 1960. At eight years old, he moves to Spring Valley, New York, about an hour outside Manhattan, you know, kind of upstate. Right. Um, and uh, according to this profile, his father worked as a steel salesman. Hmm. Uh, in high school, Feinberg threw himself into tennis, spending late hours cheering on teammates even after his own matches were over. Oh. Feinberg's mother, Madeline, died when he was a sophomore at Princeton. He later named one of Cerberus's leading operations Madeline LLC. Hmm. They're the ones who carried out the Sandy Hook <laughs> <laughs> One of their black ops operations after his mother. I like that dumb shit like that he would support. They saved the kids. Mm. They saved them. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to me how like dumb shit like he supported his other tennis player friends is the shit that makes it into articles like that. Because it's like, you mean he was a decent person once? That's That's literally what we're reporting here? I do like that he named his firm after the three-headed dog guarding his mother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, and according to allgov.com, he was a nationally ranked chess player in high school and played bridge and tennis. Um, Apparently, so he gets into Princeton, uh, like 78, I believe. He played tennis in college from this same upstart profile. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, where his intensity only increased. Mm. At times, he would come onto the court wearing eye black to the puzzlement of the rest of the players. By his senior year, <laughs> wearing blackface. <laughs> it was very offensive. <laughs> What's but... wrong with this? <laughs> it makes me see better in the sun. The entire Princeton Auditorium, just a standing ovation. <laughs> so brave. That was his strategy, as he would wear blackface in the hopes that the other team would resign rather than play somebody wearing blackface. Just be dripping with sweat after like the fucking first 15 minutes, dripping black on the fucking court. Um, oh yeah, by, by his senior year, he had become team captain and was named All-Ivy in doubles. Um, and then... Basically, uh, one of his former classmates remembers he could be, one of his former tennis partners remembers he could be sick sometimes and not practice well, but go out in the court and still be amazing. Everything he did was intense. Hmm. Um, He also served on the uh, ROTC, uh, the Army Reserve Officer uh, Training Corps. Apparently, he did like a parachuting school with them, but uh, he didn't uh, go on to the military. Um, but that's also where he kind of got into, like, sharpshooting and this kind of stuff. And sure. apparently now he's into, like, hunting and, you know, it's partly why he bought the gun company, besides the purely financial reasons. Do you guys remember ROTC kids from college? Not I, really, no. I remember, like, there, we had a crew of them at the college I went to, and, like, they were exceedingly intense. Because, like people that move to, like, a place that's got its own identity, the people try to mimic it as much so ROTC kids were more intense than like the people that were actually in the army sometimes because they were like you don't know the fuck I am I'm ROTC like they had that chip on their shoulder that ego yeah. type of thing mm-hmm. I don't like that they wore their uniforms into class yeah they, were in, I don't like that college. they wore their uniforms into the classrooms at Sandy Hook <laughs> 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 no isn't that a bit messed up though I think so I they're think, just I mean, like combining you know Higher education with military yeah, it's, propaganda. And it's got like, you know, not stolen valor, but it's got like that type of like, I don't know, it's very odd. It's just odd that we have that, that uh, strain in our schools. 
Yeah. And Feinberg like will kind of go into this, but part of he he it does face a lawsuit from the Sandy Hook parents mm-hmm. because essentially they take over um Remington and these other gun companies and then they start advertising their guns where previously it was like very plain and stripped down, but they start like having these magazine brochures of like fucking operators and selling them to military enthusiasts, you know, where it's like the entire gun business or or much of it is selling to people who were not actually in the military but mm. who wish they were in the military right, right. or feel like they could be fucking operators yeah, that, or whatever that demographic is the right. most gung-ho <laughs> exactly and so he understands that demographic he yeah. was in the rotc but never actually deployed or did anything like that hmm. you know because i feel like uh, and i i could be wrong about this but most military personnel after military don't seem to be like as hardcore gun enthusiasts as many people that have never entered the military. Not always, obviously. There's some mil- former military people that love guns. I think guns. you're describing PTSD, Yogi. <laughs> <laughs> but really, though, that is actually uh, sadly true. I mean, if you went to war and had PTSD, you don't even want to think about a gun, let alone go shooting from time Aren't to time. Aren't there, like, restrictions on if you're recently decommissioned or you resign, mm-hmm. you can't own a gun for a while or something? Uh, I'm not sure. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it makes sense, but I, I feel like that law comes in place when they realize, hey, if a person leaves the military, they're probably going to come back and want to shoot up the spot. So yeah, that, we should that's make sure. Of, yeah, these people that we train specifically to <laughs> right, kill right. probably you know let them cool off for a bit, <laughs> and also don't pay for their mental health or anything. Yeah, well, why would we do that? Um, so 1982, uh, Steven Feinberg graduates Princeton with a politics degree. Mm. A- according to the New York Times, he went into finance so he could pay off his student loans. Mm. Uh, so he got a job at Drexel Burnham Lampart, which is why a lot of people get into boiler room operations is to pay off their student <laughs> loans by scamming people. Um, but so he works at Drexel from 1982 to 1985. Uh, very little information what he actually did there. Uh, I mean, he was trading securities, but sure. I don't know how involved he was in whatever else was going on with Milken and Leon Black and right. all that. Um, but he leaves in 1985 for Gruntel & Co., which is kind of funny because we mentioned this on the Stephen A. Cohen episode. Gruntel & Co. was like the other uh, extremely criminal operation going on in Wall Street at the time. <laughs> Drexel on steroids. Yeah. Like Gruntel & Co., we mentioned on the Cohen episode, essentially, um, they were the upper management was engaged in a $14 million embezzlement scheme, <laughs> stealing money from dead customers' accounts, you know. Um, but so, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, he was at Gruntel & Co. around the time Stephen A. Cohen was. So I don't know how much they crossed paths there. But they also, they both left around... Skip! <laughs> <laughs> Skip! I was not here for the Stephen A. Cohen episode, yeah, so we we, we did we weren't able to do our do famous <laughs> Grubstickers Stephen A. impressions. Anytime there's a Stephen on the show, we we seem to go into it. Now, Skip, you know there is nobody who respects <laughs> the integrity of our financial markets more than I do, Skip. But if my friend happens to work at a Fortune 500 company, <laughs> why should he not be able to give me the quarter two results, Skip? Why? Steven, I understand what you're saying, but the reality is when you go to Kerberos, you need two coins on your eyes and one underneath your tongue to pay the, pay the boat captain, okay? And you can't do that when you're running a Fortune 500 company, and I don't care what you say, Steven, it's just not going to happen if you ask me. We have a word for that, Skip. It is called communism. <laughs> communism. <laughs> 
Listen, I understand you think communism is the reason this is happening, but I'm telling you, Stephen, the reality is, is people are going to die, and it's going to be on your watch. <laughs> Our apologies to people that don't know who these people are, and we've done these impressions time and time again. But honestly, look them up. It's fantastic. Now, Skip, you know there is nobody who respects the lives of elementary school children more than I do. (laughs) But I bought this Remington stock, Skip, and I have to make my investment pay off. Steven, I don't know. Ever since you've been talking about these guns, every time I hear your voice, this is what I hear instead. That's all I hear in the background. That's all I hear. That's it. Gunshots from your voice. Just laughing at fucking Steve A. Smith doing Defending. the Sandy Hook shooting. <laughs> a great alternate timeline. If anyone's got Stephen A.'s information, we want him on the show. Yeah. I, want, I want him to, his take on billionaires. Stephen A. is like a conspiracy, <laughs> conspiracy nut job. Um, but so, regardless, uh, the around the same time, Cohen and Steven Feinberg uh, leave Gruntle and Co. to set up their own shop. 1992, Feinberg and his partner, William Richter, uh, found Seabrus Capital Management. Richter, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, he's not a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a few hundred million. I, I don't know his exact net. He works with Conan. Yeah. <laughs> he's recently divorced and uh, retweeting a lot of single female comics. <laughs> Uh, so Cerberus Capital Management is founded in 1992. According to the New York Times, they are initially uh, specializing in buying up distressed debt and, you know, like holding it or selling it to other companies. Mm-hmm. But by the mid-90s, they get into essentially the private equity business of buying distressed companies um, and then like hiring actual executives to run them and take them over and flip them and, you know, this kind of shit. Right. So general private equity stuff. And I did just want to quote uh, one particular case of this from um, Josh Kosman's book, The Buyout of America. Of course, he was a guest on, on our podcast, but uh, he, he, he makes the, the case in, um, or he t- tells of the incident in 2004. I'm just quoting from The Buyout of America here. Um, <clears throat> uh, Cerberus Capital Management and Sun Capital Partners, uh, along with some other partners, in 2004 led the buyout of the Mervyn's discount retail chain for $1.26 billion. Um, and then they did this because they saw value in Mervyn's real estate. Essentially, right. it's retail. Uh, the stores it owns, it, own, it owns a lot of retail, but it also has long-term leases. Yeah. So according to the book uh, Buyout of America, upon closing the deal, they split Mervyn's into two separate companies. One held the real estate assets, the other the actual 257 stores. Then the newly formed uh, company that held the Mervyn's real estate borrowed $800 million to fund the uh, leveraged buyout. So that's your dividend recap. Um, right paying itself back but then they started to charge the store's market rate rents so it could more easily pay back the loan to fi- finance the buyout mm-hmm. so again this is like just classic asset stripping or you know a bust out where essentially this retail chain owns real estate and has long-term leases so they just bought, take it over and then have it sell its real estate and then suddenly jack up its rents just to pay themselves back and what happens is in 2008, July 2008, uh, Mervyn's has to file for bankruptcy. Right. Uh, according to Buyout of America, this resulted in 18,000 layoffs with the workers receiving no severance or vacation pay. So this is essentially the kind of thing they were involved in. This is standard practice in the private equity industry where it's like they would prefer to avoid bankruptcy, but even when they hit bankruptcy, they make a profit because that's the first thing they do. Right. And, you know, like we've talked about a lot of times, 
the actual sales will be fine. They just have all this extra debt from the takeover, which is what causes them to go into bankruptcy, like what ha- happened with Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to mention this. So my, my family actually shopped on Mervyn's a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, at one point, Target bought Mervyn's and it became Mervyn's California. And I, I want the listeners to know that this store was essentially like better than like Marshall's and like Ross Dress for Less but then cheaper than like Sears or JCPenney. So this store wasn't like a high-end retail place. But more importantly, the people that shopped there were people that could afford Mervyn's California and, and get a slightly better quality uh, you know, shirt or fucking pot or whatever the fuck uh, everything Mervyn sold. So it's not like... Um, so it's one of those things where you know the business that they're putting out is something that people need to survive with. And so... Everything from clothing to furniture to jewelry, anything you would need that you couldn't buy from a shopping mall, you could get from Mervyn's California. And so, fucking, these uh, private equity fucks don't give a shit that they're ripping out a fucking pillar of how people clothe and fucking take care of themselves. Right, and they've done this with a lot of retail, a lot of grocery stores. I mean, mean, it sucks. Like, I, I hate to be this sympathetic about it but like my mom hates it so much because she used to just love going and looking at the deals and because my parents would take a whole bunch of things to india so she would go where they'd have massive sales on shit and then like you know walk around shop and then leave and it was you know a golden age of retail in this country is dead because of private equity not because the businesses were bad but because private equity wanted more money in their fucking bank accounts Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting how Steve Feinberg's businesses have both supplied clothing for Yogi's extended family <laughs> and also trafficked them into subcontracting <laughs> jobs in Iraq and Afghanistan, which we'll get to in one second. Um, but I, I guess before we get to DynCore, I did want to just kind of quickly go over essentially the um, the the auto bailout that both the Bush and Obama administration did around Mm -hmm. the 2008 financial crisis. Um, According to New York Mag, perhaps no single person benefited more from the auto industry bailout than Steve Feinberg. Um, He got about $30 billion in federal bailout. Because what happens in 2006, Steve Feinberg, or uh, Cerberus, buys majority share in GMAC. This was GM's financing arm, where they like would give people the loan to buy cars, but they also got heavily into the mortgage industry. <laughs> One of those wow. really well-thought-out yeah. sure. plays. Um, and then in 2007, he buys Chrysler, but they believe he was actually buying Chrysler for the Chrysler financing arm. Right. So his play was merge GMAC and the Chrysler financing arm. But of course, you know, all the bottom fells out in 2008. And so he's left holding the bag. And essentially what happens is we mentioned uh, Jon Snow, who knows nothing. <laughs> uh, he was, Didn't want it. <laughs> In, bet- in between uh, uh, murdering Khaleesi, he was uh, managing the Treasury Department for the Bush administration. Hey, guys, spoilers. I haven't seen yeah. the show. Come no, on. I'm not white. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The, it, it is totally fair to call any show where uh, one of the shots is ruined by a Starbucks cup being left on the table <laughs> a white person's show. Yeah. I tried watching it because it was so popular, and then like the middle, I think it was like season three. I was like, "There's too many white people on this show. I just can't do it." The show's pretty bad, I and mean, that's like one of the the less bad. And it's not even like they're white happen. characters with white names. It's like Khaleesi, fucking Drogue. Get get out of my face. Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> Paul Wolfowitz. Okay, that, the show would be incredible <laughs> with Donald Rumsfeld in there. 
Um, oh yeah, so Jon Snow was the... Um, you go to war against the, the army of the dead with <laughs> the army that you have, not the army you want. <laughs> Bunch of wildlings. Forcing prisoners to stand for 10 hours a day isn't torture. I myself stand 10 to 12 hours every day <laughs> for work. Bunch of wildlings protesting that he like skimped on their armor budget. <laughs> You are using fake dragon stick glass. <laughs> um, all right. So Jon Snow, Treasury Secretary in the Bush administration until 2006. 2006, he leaves the Bush administration to join Cerberus Capital Management and basically immediately in 2007 starts lobbying the Bush administration to bail out um, Cerberus Capital Management stake in both Chrysler and GMAC. And um, I, I believe as it went here, just from the buyout of America timeline, um, in December 2008, this is after Obama's already won, but he hasn't been sworn in yet. December 2008, the Federal Reserve approves GMAC's application to become a bank holding company, which is, you know, ridiculous. But essentially what they did during the financial crisis is they give people access to these ultra low loans. Yeah, like Go- Goldman Sachs became a bank mm-hmm. in like two weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> um, it usually it takes years. Yeah, sure, sure. But so, yes, like, uh, it uh, becomes, it gets access to the discount window, even though at the time it did not meet bank capital reserve requirements mm-hmm. because it's, like, so fucking exposed to toxic <laughs> mortgages. Uh, December 2008, uh, the Treasury buys $5 billion worth of shares, which is about a 25% stake, Ooh. which is interesting where it's, like, they also didn't buy enough to give themselves a majority stake at the time. Hmm. And, of course, uh, oh, this is a 25% stake in Chrysler, excuse me. Uh, and this oh. would be wiped out in bankruptcy. So oh, essentially, wow. it's just like five billion to just like let Steve Feinberg get his money out. Essentially, is what happened here. Um, and uh, Chrysler got a four billion dollar loan in December two thousand eight from the Treasury. January two thousand nine, they get a one point five. Chrysler Financial gets a one point five billion dollar loan. Um, April uh, two thousand nine, Chrysler goes into bankruptcy. Um, <clears throat> And then uh, they allow it to merge with GMAC. But uh, May 2009, the Treasury gives another $7.5 billion to uh, G- invest another $7.5 billion in GMAC. And they actually finally take it over. But it is interesting where Elizabeth Warren talked about, essentially, they never let GMAC go into bankruptcy. So Chrysler went into bankruptcy, but people estimate Steve Feinberg got about 90% of his money back. Um, but GMAC was never allowed to go through bankruptcy. Essentially, the Fed just spent like 17 point some billion, like keeping it afloat. And mm-hmm. so Cerberus maintained, I think, like an eight and a half percent stake as of 2012. Wow. So they actually made a profit on GMAC mm-hmm. huh. just because the Fed threw 30 billion dollars yeah. at the this usual, fucking thing. The usual route that private equity takes in like an acquisition deal mm-hmm. where you like you buy, buy up a distressed. Right. Asset or or loans uh, based on the balance sheet of a distressed company and then wait for it to flounder and then offload your debt and then right. try to do some like process, triple parentheses process improvements by by firing people. Yeah, cutting corners. And then a couple, a couple of years later, he's actually innovating on that <laughs> and he's taking it to the next level and waiting for the entire industry to fail. Right, right. And then wait for the government to bail it out. 
Um, and just according to Buyout of America, uh, when Obama took over, the Treasury point man, um, uh, he was the lead advisor to the presidential task force on the auto industry, was a guy named Steve Ratner, who was a former Cerberus investor, who, of course, sold his stake fa- tax-free to join the um, Treasury. But he was also a private equity chief himself. He was a co-founder of the Quadrangle Group, <laughs> which is a private equity firm that actually had to pay a fine because it was bribing pension managers in New York State to oh, like really? direct their funds into private equity. So it's like, of course, some fucking private equity dick who's like an investor in Cerberus right. is going to recommend... He was also on the Obama tr- like economic <laughs> transition team. Yeah. What was that group called? Quadrangle? Yeah, Quadrangle oh, Group. That, that group wasn't corrupt? <laughs> if I read... The triads? Yeah. For kidding me? <laughs> We want to be like the triads, but more more math and uh, uh, shape related. Quadrangle, perfect. You know how afraid you were of geometry class in high school? <laughs> well, just wait until they wipe out your pension in bankruptcy court. <laughs> we're the rhombus crew. <laughs> I was just about to I will say, yeah, Cerberus, much more fair rhombus. and direct name than Quadrangle yeah, Group. right. Um, oh, and just one more thing from the New York Times about this. Um, the situation was made worse by the hefty interest payments on more than $10 billion in debt that Cerberus arranged for Chrysler to take on as part of the takeover. So again, these people take a company over, load it up with insane amount of debt, right, right. is the private equity business model, but of course the government has to come in and bail them out to the tune of $30 billion. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and so, you know, that's... That's basically the story of, like, how he was able to remain a billionaire. I mean, like, I don't know if he would have actually been totally wiped out had everything gone to bankruptcy. And it's like, yeah, of course, some jobs were saved. But at every point, you know, the government really did it in a way to protect Steve Feinberg's investment, Mm -hmm. essentially. Not in a way to actually protect the workers. Very few strings attached. Damn. It's like, it's crazy because Feinberg's, like, walking a tightrope. But then underneath them are, like, four nets to... To catch him if he oh, fails, yeah. and like big surprise, this guy is like a radical free market Republican yeah, who donates one point five million to Trump, and like he originally donated to Jeb Bush before he got wiped out. <laughs> but it's like, you know, these people believe, oh, the free market. When you're getting thirty fucking billion dollars yeah. in Fed bailout, like we've mentioned this, every single financial billionaire is directly supported by the federal government, but very few to just the insane degree that Steven Feinberg was. Right, right. Um, but I guess we should kind of move on to DynCore here, uh, because DynCore, uh, they actually made a movie about DynCore. It's called The Whistleblower. I recommend it. It's uh, depressing. But it talks about, essentially, in Kosovo, after the war there, uh, DynCore was hired uh, for uh, peacekeeping operations. And uh, basically, they uh, their employees started a massive sex trafficking operation uh, where they would move uh, girls from Serbia um, through the checkpoints that they controlled right, into right. these areas and then, you know, force them into sex slavery. Uh, and then two different employees uh, tried to become whistleblowers on this and DynCorp fired them. So basically, what? to cover up their sex trafficking operation, they fired two different employees, one of whom had to, like, flee the country uh, in fear of her life. Yeah. Um, and they made a movie about this. And 
it was just kind of horrifying because it was like upper management was either directly involved or just like they were worried about their contract with the UN, so they had to cover it up. I, I hate uh, to even ask this, but so were they running a sex ring, as in bringing people from Serbia to fuck themselves, or was it they're bringing people over uh, borderlines to sell to other people to both, traffic them? Both. Wow. I mean, it was like wow. primarily financial. Jesus but, fucking yeah. Christ. But yeah, no, if you want to be depressed, just watch the Ugh. movie The Whistleblower. It, it tells most of the story there. Um, but that is the corporation that in 2010, Steven Feinberg decides to buy into. Um, so in 2010, Feinberg uh, buys into that. Um, and, and, you know, so it's like uh, DynCorp has like that reputation. It's also like been involved in sex trafficking in Afghanistan. Um, in 2009, uh, from like WikiLeaks revealed basically that uh, in 2009, DynCorp contractors paid a 15-year-old Afghan boy to uh, perform lap dances and entertain them. Um, and of course, uh, if you're familiar with the Afghan thing, there's a tradition uh, which uh, Bakabazi uh, often involves rape, basically like child True, rape yeah. you know and of course you know dying core contractors were involved in this um i believe hillary clinton was emailed in 2009 allegedly uh, <laughs> she was warned of an upcoming washington post article about dying being involved in you know uh at least lap dances but sure that's what we know you would assume there yeah. was also actual sex with children going on there um and this is where like a lot of the q anon stuff comes from where it's like you take this thing that's very clearly true and you know uh and you thought that jeffrey epstein opening was a red herring ladies and gentlemen <laughs> uh-uh it all connects ladies and gentlemen um if the clintons are involved guess what so is sex yeah uh <laughs> But, you know, it's like, so, of course, DynCor is like a bunch of contracts in Haiti, and then, like, the conspiracy is, well, we don't know if it's a conspiracy. Sure, but sure, yeah. if you want to get up there in Medium.com, you can read a lot more detail about how uh, Hillary Clinton's brother was point man for DynCor's sex trafficking operations in Haiti, which is why he had to be murdered. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's crazy how my perception of the Clintons has changed as I've grown up. Yeah. Because it went from like, oh, that dude got a blowjob in the White House to now where it's like, oh, that, uh, that, was, the, that was the tip of the iceberg. Literally the tip. All right, Steven, let's get it in here. Huh? High fives all around. Uh, <laughs> and then like less, uh, let's say, egregious, but um, definitely true is that during the time that Steven Feinberg owned it, DynCorp has been repeatedly uh, accused... Excuse me. During the time Steven Feinberg has owned it, DynCorp has repeatedly been accused of like illegally overbilling the federal government, like from the New York Post. Um, DynCorp allegedly billed uh, the government $80 million for Damco work through 2011 through 2013, at least $30 million of which was improper cost. Basically, they overbill the government for like fuel surcharges, oversized boxes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because, you know, they're a military contractor and, and that's what they do. And, you know, they were in Afghanistan. They were heavily in Afghanistan. There was, like, an allegation that a, in 2007 a DynCorp employee murdered a taxi driver for no reason and was, of course, protected. Well, this um, is why Uber and Lyft had to come in. You know, they really... <laughs> you can't control these taxi drivers. They do these things where they talk to you and are friendly. Uh, in 2001, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was an investor. Um, though, I guess, uh, at the time... DynCorp did not was not owned by uh, Feinberg. Yeah, hmm. but uh, just kind of like interesting stuff where it's like they've really leveraged government connections and in, in these kinds of um, 
these kinds of things. Um, and, you know, they were involved in training the Iraqi police. Uh, one allegation was um, a government audit said that they have n- uh, they were unable to determine how, mu- how any of the $1.3 billion DynCorp was given to train Iraqi police officers in 2007 was, was spent. Or it was an audit from 2007 revealed that uh, $1.3 billion spent training Iraqi police. They had no idea where it went or what it was done. Really? You know, yeah. Um, hey, is one of the reasons why the government isn't like, hey, what did you do with this money? Because they're literally talking to people that control military groups. Like, you know, if you're at a restaurant and they charge you extra for something, you can be like, hey, I, you know, I, you know, fix this, you know, because you could relatively probably assume the waitress or a waiter won't beat you up. But in this case, the government's not going to go up to fucking military personnel and be like, hey, did you? I, I, never mind. I, I think we're all right here. Is that is that one of the reasons, or do they just not care? I think you say it. Well, it's less than being directly intimidated by them. They're they're intimidated by losing contracts with U.S. military companies. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so it's a com- it's, yeah, it's yeah. Kind of a combination of both. Too, well, it's but more the other side. Yeah, where it's like there have been a couple, like we mentioned, these auditor reports where Dyncor will get like fined a few times for right, overbilling, right. but it's like the reason they keep getting these contracts is because they're leveraging government connections where it's like, besides hiring like the former treasury secretary, they're hiring all these military people. And, you know, it's just the revolving door where it's like, they keep uh, the bread buttered for government employees who in turn lobby the government and expect their own little retirement uh, job with DynCorp for making sure they, they get a good, uh, get a good contract. Yeah. Like the degree of regulatory capture, I guess Mm -hmm. for, for the weapons industry is just like so great that even though there's still one buyer, it's a uh, still basically a single payer. Right, <laughs> but right, for right. military hardware, uh, the prices are still skyrocketing, and like other countries have been shown to pay. Well, not that I, this is not necessarily me advocating for military industrial sure, complexes, sure, right, right. but other countries do pay a lot less for their weapons. Yeah, from other manufacturers than we do for ours. Right. Not saying that anyone should be paying any amount right. for any weapons, but uh, yeah. Kind of like the pharmaceutical industry where the, the drugs are cheaper yeah. overseas. Yeah, than they are exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, one last thing I want to go through with DynCorp uh, is essentially the non-sexual element of human trafficking. There's a New Republic story. Um, DynCorp is heavily involved in the other side, which is uh, just from the New Republic. About 80% of human trafficking is not uh, for labor, essentially. Like, only about 20% is the actual sex trafficking thing. So, just from the New Republic, since 2007, the Army has given DynCor and a company named uh, Fleur a combined $16.8 billion, this is from 2007 to 2014, uh, to... Um, this is a contract uh, called the Logistics Civil Augmentation Program. Basically, the contractors oversee everything from laundry to food prep to construction on oh, military yeah. bases mm-hmm. yeah. throughout Afghanistan. Um, these companies, in turn, rely on the subcontractor Ecolog to hire workers in Dubai, uh, many of whom yeah. end up. Basically, they talk about how these contractors, these workers, have to pay recruitment fees. Um, so, like, you know, they have to pay, like, say, Two thousand five hundred U.S. dollars to a recruiter to get to this job at uh, at DynCor, um, and uh, basically, like the New Republic kind of goes through. Often, these work workers will have to take out high interest loans in their home country to pay the recruitment fee. The payments can then trap them in their new jobs, where it's like the recruiters will tell them, "Hey, you're going to be in like a fucking Jordanian hotel," right. and then you're actually like stuck on like a custodial position on U.S. military bases in a war zone. 
Um, and then uh, they, they interview this guy for the New Republic. He talks about one case where an Indian college graduate named Ramesh paid 5000 up front to an agent who promised an 800 per month salary to work for a U.S. contractor in Iraq. Once in Iraq, he was only offered 150 per month. Again, human trafficking, where it's like once you get them there, right. they're trapped, you know. Once in Iraq, he was only offered 150 per month, but took the job because he felt he had no other choice. When the loan shark became dissatisfied with the repayment rate, he sexually assaulted Ramesh's sister. Wow. His sister hung herself, and his mother fell into a state of shock. When Ramesh returned home to India, he and his surviving family members poisoned themselves. And, uh, you know, this is uh, just what happens with human contracting. It's a, yeah. it's a moral tragedy. And the thing is, the U.S. government is giving them $16 billion in contracts. They've repeatedly said these recruitment fees are illegal, but they never stop renewing this contract. So it's just fucked up and ridiculous. And one yeah. thing I've also heard about these these job positions within military groups is that they'll say that these positions are being paid that much to then overinflate how much money they can get from the government later on. So they'll be like... Uh, this person that does our laundry makes, you know, they, they, we need to pay them, you know, seven or eight hundred dollars, but then actually pay them less, but then charge the government that much for the actual jobs that they're doing. Mm-hmm. What fucking crooks? Yeah, and the other thing is essentially uh, the contractors. There is no reason for them to use subcontractors. Right. This eco log company, they just do it. Uh, according to one person interviewed for the New Republic, they just do it because they feel they get additional insulation, both from a tax and liability perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an ACLU report from 2011 suggests that um, adver- online recruitment advertisements from this subcontractor Ecolog found on an Indian jobs website uh, requires a $2,000 recruitment fee. Because basically Ecolog, of course, denied charging illegal recruitment right, fees, right. but it's like the ACLU found actual advertisements demanding this recruitment fee. And, of course, DynCorp pockets these recruitment fees. Yeah. So you get however many... D- billions from the feds and then you get you know say you have eight thousand workers paying two thousand five hundred each that's 20 million right. just untaxed black money and you know a similar thing happens with non-military civilian contractors oh like really temp agencies for the government hmm. yeah stateside one thing i want to mention is that like you know the reason why you know in this specific case with ramesh and this indian family the the middle class population of india is roughly the population of the united states and so a lot of kids, if they can't go into the traditional fields of success, being a doctor or an engineer, uh, sometimes in school will just kill themselves. Like uh, recently, there was like a issue with like the test machines that was grading them, and, and kids that were like top A students got lower marks, and then they just committed suicide. Like, oh my god! Yeah, because because like that's what? the level of pressure to succeed in in, uh, in the Indian society is so high because whoever's you're, maintaining those testing machines has his power. Yeah, of course, of course. And with situations... Yogi, have I told you how much I respect you for resisting the pressure to succeed from (laughs) Indian society? (laughs) I am a true anomaly. But, um, you know, so with this case of, like, a job being overseas and with upward mobility, most of the jobs people in India will take outside of the country will be so that they can send money back home. So with Ramesh effing this up, I mean, I bet that the daughter uh, hanging herself... Like, you know, it crippled the family and so made them all want to... Uh, it's a terrible situation that is directly caused by a billionaire who has the power and the luxury, not the tenacity, but the luxury to not be committed for their crimes. Mm-hmm. And I think when people hear the phrase human trafficking, they only think about someone who is just like 
living in liter physically imprisoned right in is being flown all around the world like just trapped physically yeah. all the time and no it's like every uh, you're you can be fi like financially imprisoned as well yeah there's just no foreseeable way back to your home country after you realize you're screwed out of uh 650 a month right, i guess right. it went from 800 to 150 a month to mm -hmm. pay back what was it uh, $5,000. $5,000. $5, so, yeah. it's going to take years and years to recoup your... Right. Right, but pennies compared loss. to what the fucking billionaire class is dealing with. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's lunacy that the the amount of corruption that is, is riddled in these things are as hidden as they are. But no wonder fucking Feinberg doesn't do a goddamn interview until well, he's trying to merge companies. For another perspective, let's go to a New York Magazine interview with Lindsay, Stephen Feinberg's oldest daughter. <laughs> She's entering her junior year at college at the time. She recently asked her father to buy her a car but says she knew better than to ask for a foreign model. Quote, I was lucky to get him to agree to any car because he was like, and here she drops her voice an octave in playful imitation, the first car that any teenager gets has to be a broken down piece of trash that cost them 500 that you got used from a crackhead dealer. Oh my god. <laughs> she says that her father constantly drills her and her sisters on the importance of hard work. And uh you know What? <laughs> this guy that made a dick load of money from not working nearly that hard and screwing people over is now fucking yelling at his kids to work harder? What? What kind of car did she get though? Yeah, what did she get? Uh, something from a crackhead deal. Twenty <laughs> a Prius. Listen, Jessica's Feinberg bought a crackhead a fucking new car, and then she negotiated to buy that car for crack money. Doesn't mean it's a crackhead car. satisfies the contract they laid out. All right, listen, listen, daughter. I bought this crackhead a 2017 uh, Ford Focus. So if you can get him to talk it down, I think, I think you can pick it up for a couple hundred dollars because they're really addicted to crack. I do like how he created so many new crackheads by killing their children at Sandy Hook <laughs> Elementary School. Well, all I know personally is that there's only one quote that I think uh, exemplifies all of this. Yeah, man, these are some real white motherfuckers that invented this shit, dog. I don't know none of that. One other thing. Uh, in 2012, the same daughter, Lindsay, posted a picture of her father's T-shirt to Instagram. It featured images of a sniper rifle trailing smoke, a mounted machine gun, oh and a row of bullets emblazoned with the tagline, It's time to work, <laughs> in all caps. <laughs> In the comments, she posed the question, who is my dad? Dot, 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 question, 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 question. What? And the answer is a mass murderer. <laughs> a welfare sponge and mass murderer and human trafficker. Uh, I like how that Instagram post is like when the robots get sentience. Like they're like, oh shit, I figured out who my maker truly is. <laughs> Um, but so before we run out of time here, there is like one more case I want to go through. First, I just really quickly to roll up the Remington Freedom Group, all that nonsense. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, uh, the New York Times kind of goes through what they did with Remington. They buy it in t bought it in 2006. We mentioned they're merging all these different gun companies trying to to um, uh, make one super site. Like they set up a, a factory in Huntsville, Alabama with about 40 million in state subsidies. They do this there because they had a unionized upstate New York plant and they go to a right to work state where they can bust the union. They start laying off a bunch of people basically, but they're doing great during the Obama admin, but then Trump gets elected and kind of the bill comes due. Right. But the New York Times did a very good job essentially finding how they did this dividend recap with Remington. 
Um, so essentially, they created a new holding company, um, and then they put money into the holding company. Then they had the uh, holding company um, bought Remington. Uh, but according to New York Times, in 2010, Cerberus had the holding company borrow $225 million from an undisclosed group of lenders. Um, and then uh, basically, essentially why Remington went bankrupt was because they had this giant $225 million uh, loan, which they spent buying back its own stock, essentially tra- transferring all of the borrowed cash back to Cerberus. Hmm. So they did this d- dividend recap bullshit with, with Remington as well. Right. And then in 2018, Remington has to go into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And according to uh, Naked Capitalism, among the largest unsecured creditors listed in the petition are the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., which hmm. is the U.S. government's insurer for failed private sector pensions, and the Marlin Firearms Company Employees Pension Plan. Remington had acquired Marlin Firearms in 2008. So the idea is that the restructured company will walk away from its pension obligations. So, you know, just this wow. kind of bullshit. Um, but I, the, the last thing that I wanted to do here is mention one of uh, the biggest bugaboos uh, to me is the mortgage fraud financial crisis. Uh, because, believe it or not, like many other private equity firms, Cerberus is involved there. Um, We've we've kind of mentioned, you know, in the uh, aftermath of the financial crisis, there's approximately about 10 million foreclosures, many of them done fraudulently um, with, you know, robo-signed, fake documents, all that bullshit. Right. They threw 10 million people out of their homes onto the streets, and then the federal government set up a policy to turn these into single-family rentals where, you know, they sell them in bulk. Like if Fannie Mae did a bunch of foreclosures and then in 2012 they started selling them in bulk to like Blackstone Group and some other private equities who turned them into um, uh, single-family rentals uh, controlled by this uh, this this private equity firm who really just don't give a fuck about right, the people right. who live in there. And, you know, the, the kind of horrifying thing is a lot of people who were foreclosed on end up being permanent renters in the same houses they used to live mm-hmm. or they used to own. Right, you know? right. Um, and this was entirely the result of government policy. You know, another way he, we, he um, benefits here is he benefits from the government creating a permanent renter class by foreclosing on 10 million people. And uh, so basically Cerberus manages uh, a company called um, first key homes hmm. and if you want to see what uh half star reviews look like <laughs> go ahead and google the reviews for first key homes um, but first key was like cerberus bought up a bunch of properties and distressed mortgages in the aftermath of the financial crisis after the government bailed them out of course because they had the capital to actually be buyers in this downturn um uh, First Key Homes was set up to manage their real estate rental properties, and it says as of December 2018, it manages about 21,000 homes. Um, and then there's a Washington Post story, but I did just want to quote quickly from a March 2019 Yelp review mm-hmm. from a Georgia tenant. Uh, if I could give this place a zero, I would, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is commonly used uh, by either people getting screwed by their landlord or white girls at tapas bars. <laughs> Uh, but basically, I'm renting a property here and have had hell since day one. They are slow to fix things. I waited over a month and a half for a new dishwasher. The air filters weren't clean, rendering me unable to breathe. I've had to act an ass just to get these people to fix basic things. Clogged sink for over a month. You'll have people on Yelp talking about months waiting for security deposits, damages that existed when they rented the place, being charged to their security deposits, black mold, rats, uh, like some guy discovered rats under his sink, cockroaches, all that bullshit. 
Um, but the last thing I wanted to mention here is, you know, we mentioned this 21,000 rental home empire. Cerberus is the largest uh, landlord in um, a town near Memphis, in, in essentially Memphis, Tennessee. Um, according to the Washington Post, it uses unusually aggressive tactics to recover late rent. Uh, it fi- First Key Homes files for eviction at twice the rate of other rental property managers in the Memphis wow. area and uh, threatens renters with removal at the highest rate among the area's largest management firm, going to, uh, in 2018, going to court more than 400 times. And um, it is just kind of horrifying where essentially what they do is they use eviction court to intimidate tenants into shutting the fuck up. Yeah, of course. Where it's like, you know, if you have, we mentioned, you know, black mold or rats in the sink or some shit, if you complain to them, they're like, okay, we're just going to throw you the fuck out. Right, right. You know. It's part of a plea deal. You have to give us five-star rating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just going on from this Washington Post article, the company has filed for eviction at an annual rate of 21 times per 100 homes since 2015, the highest rate among the region's large property managers and above the overall average in the Memphis area of 11 evictions per 100 rental homes. Um, and the discrepancy can't be explained where First Key has property. Its, its rates of filing for eviction is far above the average in 17 out of the 18 zip codes where it has at least 20 homes, according to the Washington Post. Um and so basically, you know, it kind of just goes on from here. It tells this story that's really heartbreaking about this family in Memphis uh, who essentially, like I said, they owned their homes. Uh, they got a predatory adjustable rate mortgage from Bank of America, which Bank of America would later pay a settlement for giving them. Hmm. Uh, they own their home, and then they were actually paying less on this mortgage than First Key now charges them in rent on the same house because, you know, they got... Uh, a predatory loan to buy this house, then the government didn't help them keep it at all, even though they were the victims of predatory lending. And then the government or whoever ended up with it sold it off to first key homes. And now they're the victims of a predatory rental company. And they make the point where um, the Washington Post like shows a map of where predatory lending took place in the financial crisis in the Memphis area. And it about lines up perfectly where first key is doing the most evictions and, uh, has the most rental right, properties. Of right. You know. So it's just like fucking the robbing people. Yeah. And you know, it is just one of those things where it's like so much of what billionaires say, you know, I built is just the result of often absolutely horrific government policy. Yeah. That, you know, just traps people in a, in a cycle of poverty. Yeah, man, these some real white motherfuckers that invented this shit, dog. I don't know none of that. Uh, one last thing from the Washington Post. Uh, most of Cerberus's houses are in medium-sized cities hit hard by foreclosures, such as St. Louis, Indianapolis, and Memphis, the last of which saw a drop in the percentage of homes that are owner-occupied from 80, 82% to 73% between 2008 and 2016. The Midwest is its bread and butter, uh, hmm. somebody said at a conference quoted by the Washington Post. Um, and, and so essentially, like, uh, the thing is, Cerberus manages, we mentioned, more than 20,000 properties scattered across, across 23 different markets. And, you know, there's like no landlord-tenant relationship with these financials. They're just numbers on a spreadsheet. But another thing is, you know, the Washington Post tallies up horrific code violations. We mentioned, you know, the rats or like there was a property that burned down that Cerberus like did nothing about for a year. Wow. Essentially until the Washington Post contacted them for the story. And then, and then they like, like sent yeah. someone up to board it up. That but, almost you know, makes you miss the flesh and blood Memphis landlord. <laughs> <laughs> now there's just straight up no one there. Right, right. They might hire someone every year or something. 
Yeah. Um, and there was a study from like the Fed in Atlanta that essentially said that uh, these fi- large corporate landlords are are eight percent more likely to file for eviction than small landlords. But essentially, like you know, and they talk about these people, Cerberus will own these homes, and then they just won't even have any contact information. Sure, sure. You know, because it's like totally impossible to get in touch with them. So a home can fucking burn down and become like a haven for pests and rats and like blight the whole neighborhood, and they don't know what's going on. They don't give a fuck. And, you know... And why should they? They're getting away with it. <laughs> yeah. You try to call them up. They're just like, okay, why are you so loud? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it is just something where it's like, look, Stephen Feinberg is a free market Republican guy who believes in a market for organs of human children that he <laughs> killed at Sandy Hook and then harvested. But, you know, it's like, look, what, what has he done? He's been bailed out of his disastrous investment in mortgage-backed securities through GM's financial arm for $230 billion. And then because he was bailed out, he had the cash on hand when shit hit the fan and the government decided we're not going to protect anybody who was the victim of predatory lending or it would just through circumstances no fault of their own were not able to pay their mortgage when the economy collapses it's not the individual's fault if they can't pay their fucking mortgage and the government had an obligation to help people stay in their homes but instead we foreclosed on 10 million people and created a class of permanent renters that now cerberus and billionaires like steve feinberg benefit from well harassing these people you know destroying their lives and threatening them to just shut the fuck up about the rats in their house and shit and it's horrifying you know these people are just pieces of garbage and you know hopefully he gets implicated in the epstein thing yeah i completely agree yeah but uh i mean that's about it maybe we'll return to cerberus later if we missed anything you know hit us up at grubstakers pod on twitter uh grubstakers podcast at gmail.com uh anything else on steven feinberg before we get out of here I don't believe so. All right. Well, give us five stars on iTunes. Um, Andy Palmer will be back next week, we promise. (laughs) Unless he gets named in the Epstein documents. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I'm Yogi Pollywell. Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, welcome to a bit of uh, bonus grub stakers. Um, We're just talking a bit more about Stephen Feinberg because we just did this episode about Stephen Feinberg, the uh, founder of Cerberus Capital, Mm -hmm. private equity firm, and uh, a listener alerted us to something we missed. And I thought it would be worth talking about. So we're just going to do that really quickly is that uh, Cerberus Capital, in addition to being, you know, the private equity firm that got $30 billion for the federal government from, right. uh, for the auto bailout, that uh, manufactured the gun used in Sandy Hook. Uh, <laughs> Among other things, but yes. Harvested organs through DynCorp. Uh, Trained the crisis actors. Yeah, killed Hillary Clinton's yeah. brother to cover up the organ harvesting in Haiti. All those other <laughs> uh, real scandals that you can look up that Stephen Feinberg is linked to. Uh, in addition, he also to that, did something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to all that, um, something we missed on this episode uh, is essentially a listener point this out to us is that just from the exiled online, uh, Mark Ames wrote in 2010 about how essentially uh, Cerberus Capital has made money on blood sucking. Like, Literally, yeah, not uh, metaphorical blood sucking, actual blood sucking. Yeah, so basically just from this uh, article on the Exiled Online from 2010, in 2010, Cerberus sold their stake in uh, Talcris, is a company, T-A-L-E-C-R-I-S. They bought it for $82.5 million. They sold it for $1.8 billion. Like, that's a huge return. Right. 
And so essentially, just quoting from the exile, they did it by the most savage, heartless means possible by paying peanuts to their impoverished human plasma donors who increasingly come from Mexican border towns to blood pumping stations set up on the American side. And then they jack up the price of the plasma by restricting the supply. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, actually sued them for setting up an oligarchy in this respect. And it is just something where... um, I don't know. It's extremely horrifying where you'll have uh, the literally bus people across the border to the, from Mexico. Because in Mexico, the United States is one of the few countries where it's actually legal to sell plasma right. for money. <laughs> in Mexico, it is illegal. And so, most of the world. Yes. So they will, bu- uh, they will bus these poor, impoverished per, uh, people who are, of course, decimated by you know the very capitalist, neoliberal policies that they, uh, they promote so much. They'll bust them across the border, pay them 30 bucks for an hour of having their plasma sucked out, and then sell it for a huge markup. See, this is why I'm taking the side of the um, leftist case for closed borders. Because <laughs> it used to be just a hardworking, hardworking American. Right, right. Could sell his blood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for a fair price. That's right. To pay his rent, uh, but now they're just with open borders. This is just a look into the future. You know, you can just bus uh, people over from Mexico. They sell their blood. You know, it's undermining the American worker, and that's why I, as a leftist, am advocating closed borders. Uh, You're tired of these Mexicans taking our blood money. This would be one of the most innovative reactionary leftist takes. For closed borders, yeah. I've heard is like Mexico. Mexico has more progressive laws against blood plasma market, <laughs> so that's why we should close up the border. Sorry, look, uh, you were saying, Sean. Well, all I was saying is that I shouldn't have to press one for English blood. <laughs> 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 that should be English blood should be the default option. Um, this isn't our blood uh, used to be unionized. <laughs> the blood plasma market is forecast to grow to forty-four billion dollars in so four in, years. So invest now. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Get on best brokers so and get into the blood market. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, with regard to Steven Feinberg, as of right now, he's out of the market. Like they dumped their stake in 2010. But just continuing from this exiled article, they sell this, you know, plasma to people suffering from hemophilia, severe burns, multiple sclerosis, autoimmune deficiencies, and uh, from the exiles, the products cost so much. Um, basically, one these one transmission of these intravenous hemoglobin. Uh, they cost. I think I got it right. Emo, hemoglobin. 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 Not feeling so well. Hemoglobin. You know, came out with uh, a Coheed and Cambria <laughs> and uh, a couple I, of those bands. I, I love that the, the, the soundtrack they did for the for the Tim Burton movies <laughs> in 2005. <laughs> we said we'd do five minutes bonus on this, but we didn't count on the time it takes me to pronounce things. <laughs> Uh, regardless, one of these transfusions, according to the exiles, cro- co- cost twice the price of gold as of summer 2009, um, and that the American health insurance companies have been dropping or denying policyholders, and this essentially kills people. So it's like, on the one hand, you're sucking blood out of you know poor, desperate immigrants for like vastly below market prices, then you're using your, oligop- uh, your oligopoly to jack up mm-hmm. the price that the American consumers actually pay for it. So it's like, that's why he gets such a crazy return buying this company for $82.5 million, selling it for $1.8 billion. So, I mean, he's making money sucking blood out of people and also killing people who need that blood. And that's why we need stronger regulations to make sure that the people who give the blood are paid market prices for their blood. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and you know, it just kind of goes on. This article in the Exiled, I recommend checking it out. Um, but Did you intend that to be a joke? But actually, we took it seriously. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but basically, they just have all these plasma stations right along the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, we mentioned, like, essentially within, like, 30 feet, you get off the border, you see a ton of plasma stations. Mm. Because, again, you know, these are desperately, uh, many of them, desperately poor people, and they can't sell their plasma in Mexico. So, of course, they come to the United States, where we're one of the few countries that has this really, literally vampiric market for this shit. And, uh, this is one of the sketchiest test rabbits ever. <laughs> I want to sell your blood. <laughs> but um, it is just something to kind of like put on the ledger with regard to Steven Feinberg is like, you know, how did you make your money? It's like, okay, well, I got a bunch of money from running a scam with uh, <laughs> Michael Milken and uh, working at Gruntle and Co. with Stephen A. Cohen, who was later convict, uh, pled guilty to insider trading violations or failure to supervise, whatever the case may be. It's like you get all this startup capital in a shady way, and then you leverage it, where essentially you're getting desperately poor people to literally sell you their blood, and then you're using your market position to jack up the price that blood will uh, will fetch on the American market, where you know you give somebody thirty dollars for an hour of their time. You, we we pay guests on the podcast more <laughs> than he was paying for an hour's worth of blood being sucked out of them, and making such an insane return on that. So, it and, is, and we take our guests plasma. <laughs> but I guess uh, you know. So that's just something else to add to the ledger on uh, Stephen Feinberg. And um, if we do an episode on a billionaire, and there's some stuff we don't get to, please just shoot us an email. Please or, just do our work for us. Exactly. <laughs> that's the other thing is. <laughs> We've studied these billionaires so that we can replicate their models of exploitation. Right. So, you know, like Amazon will have you do reviews for free. Yeah. That's free labor for Amazon. So if you are listening to our podcast and you notice some good stories about how they are actual imperial vampires sucking the blood out of Mexican uh, immigrants, uh, feel free to just email us and maybe we'll uh, do a little addition to a to an episode we've already done. Mm, thank you to our listener that emailed yes. us this information. Thank you for our listener uh, to uh, bringing this to our attention. And, um, yeah. and thank you for helping us make the case against open borders. Again, you can always email us, grubstakerspodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at grubstakerspod on Twitter. Um, you know, and so we'll keep an eye on what Steven Feinberg does in the future. Hopefully he will uh, finally pay those students at Sandy Hook for all that blood he took from them. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I just think, you know, he had a free source of domestic American blood, and he had to outsource it. Wait, he exploited those false flag actors? All right. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks uh, to our listener who brought that to our attention. And uh, keep us posted about what you find out about billionaires that we miss. Chica-chica. Uh...